0: I came across uh, this story this week of a woman who woke up one morning and turned to her husband, who was in bed, and told him, Honey, I've just had a dream, and I dreamt that you bought me a new gold necklace. What do you think the dream means? Her husband answered, Honey, I don't know, but Valentine's Day is coming soon. Then you'll know. A few nights later, she woke up again after having a dream, and she turned to her husband and she said, Honey, this time I dreamt that you bought me a pearl necklace. What do you think the dream means? The husband replied, Honey, you'll know on Valentine's Day. Now comes the morning of Valentine's Day, and the woman wakes up again, and she has a dream. And she tells her husband, honey, I have a dream. And this time I dreamt that you bought me a diamond necklace. What do you think the dream means? He replied to her, honey, be patient. You'll know tonight. That evening, the husband came with a package and gave it to his wife. Delighted, she opened it and found a book titled, The Meaning of Dreams. When one expects a jeweled necklace and gets a book instead, one cannot help but feel disappointment. You know, this humorous story reminds us that in life we experience much disappointment. Our family members disappoint us. Our parents disappoint us. Our children disappoint us. Our friends disappoint us. Our colleagues, they disappoint us. They fail us. They do not come to help us when we have need of them, as we expect them to do. They do not come to our aid, as they have so promised. Or perhaps in some extreme cases, they have figuratively or literally stabbed you in the back. And all of these disappointments bring with it anger and resentment on our part. And as we're going to find out, while anger is not a sin... The actions that come from anger often causes many problems. In fact, a lot of messiness in life and family dysfunctions are brought about because anger is not properly expressed or dealt with. And so this morning we continue our sermon series entitled Home. We're looking specifically at the life of Jacob and the dysfunction in his family to draw out some biblical principles If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We are at chapter 27, we pick up at verse 41. And we will draw out this morning some principles as it relates to disappointment and anger. And how when it is properly dealt with, it will honor the Lord. But when it is not properly dealt with, it brings about great devastation. By way of reminder, if you missed the first few of the messages in the series, again I encourage you to go listen online. Uh, the messages are available on our website. But to bring you up to speed, we find out that Esau is very angry that Jacob has received what he believes is rightfully his. Jacob, as you remember from last week, impersonates his brother at the encouragement of their mother. Rebekah, and Jacob, instead of Esau, receives the blessing from their father, Isaac. And we pick up the story in verse 41 of chapter 27. So Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, the days of mourning for my father are at hand, then I will kill my brother Jacob. And the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she said and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Surely your brother Esau, note this, comforts himself concerning you by intending to kill you. After the deception of Jacob pretending to be Esau, Esau, as we've noted, is furious. He vows to kill his brother when their father Isaac has passed away. Apparently it is not some sort of secret murmuring that he has this intention it is an open secret this intention of Esau to kill Jacob comes to the ears of their mother Rebecca she hears about it and calls for Jacob to warn him I want you to see in verse 42 how Rebecca frames why Esau is doing what he's doing she says that he is trying to console and comfort himself by killing you he's trying to deal with disappointments He's trying to deal with the anger of his life. He's trying to deal with the loss in his heart by taking revenge. Her perception into Esau's motive is where we can extrapolate our first principle, number one, if you're taking notes. Revenge is often the natural consolation for people who have been hurt. Revenge is often the natural consolation For people who have been hurt. The second part of this principle. Don't let the thought of revenge take over your life. Don't let the thought of revenge consume your life. Revenge is often the natural consolation for people who have been hurt. Don't let the thought of revenge consume your life. Take over your life. If you think about it, that is indeed our natural response Ever since we were young, if you remember what happened at the playground when you lost the game, when you were taken advantage of, when you were made fun of, in your heart you can still remember the vow that you will get them back, that you will take revenge on them. And we never outgrow this sort of thinking, even into our adult life we have the same thought when someone has wronged us i will get you back i will have my revenge the most natural consolation for individuals who have been wronged is to expose them to bring them to justice to see them hurt If you have hurt me i want to hurt you right back and somehow You must admit that even the thought of hurting them back makes you feel good, doesn't it? You've hurt me. I'm going to take you down. One day, I'm going to take you down. Something's going to happen to you. And somehow that thought makes you feel good. Or so we think. Don't let those sinful thoughts consume you. Now you say, well, maybe it's innocuous, right? Such as in a sports game where they're played by a team or individually, you lose the game and your natural reaction is, I'll beat you the next time. It is motivation to try harder. You can couch it as a motivation to try harder, but in reality, you still want to exact revenge. You want to get them back. I remember a humorous story about a luggage handler at the airport, and he was assisting the ticket agent to check in a traveler. The traveler apparently was having a bad day and didn't take so kindly to how the baggage handler was handling his luggage. And so, the traveler began to belittle and to criticize the luggage handler. Surprisingly, The porter didn't seem troubled by this man's verbal abuse, but he kept going on and on using some coarse words. But surprisingly, the luggage handler remained silent. After the angry traveler went away, a woman standing behind approached this young man and said, young man, how were you able to be so patient? How were you able to put up with such injustice and his berating?" The young man looked at the woman and said, thank you for your concern. You know, ma'am, it's quite easy. This man is flying to New York. I'm sending his baggage to Brazil. Wait until he lands. Whether mischievous or sinister, revenge is the natural consolation for men and women who have been hurt. Esau has lost something that he cannot get back. He has lost his birthright and all the privileges that come with it. He has lost the blessings from the Father. There is a deep loss in his life and it drives him to want to take out revenge by killing his brother Jacob. It's very normal to feel angry, sad, and even disappointment with the circumstances that life brings Especially if injustice has been done. But my friends, take note. Your actions in response to how you feel is important. While taking revenge is a natural response, it should not be our natural response as believers in Jesus Christ. As hard as it may be, as counterintuitive as it may be, love and forgiveness should be our natural response instead of revenge. Instead of allowing thoughts of ways you can get them back, perhaps you can remind yourself that the Lord does see all and He will vindicate. Now, I've never said following biblical principles are easy. I've never sugarcoated the fact that if we are to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that it would be easy and yet, as we are Christians, called to follow Jesus, then our example must be the very person of Jesus, who in his righteous anger could have exacted righteous revenge, justice we call it, on all those who did him wrong. Imagine what he could have done to his betrayer Judas, one of the twelve With one snap of his finger, Judas could have fallen dead. And yet Jesus gave him an opportunity to repent. As Jesus endured the six illegal trials that led to his crucifixion, he could have cursed every one of the participants in those trials and their families. And yet he does not. For all the people who cried out for the release of Barabbas the murderer instead of Jesus the innocent he could have done something horrible to them as the son of God and yet he does not what is his response to such disappointment from friends and even family members his words on the cross father forgive them for they know not what they do. So difficult to follow our Lord, and yet that's it is what we are called to do. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 and 32 Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender hearted. Forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. The Apostle Paul challenges us to respond instead of revenge with kindness, forgiveness. Knowing it would be hard, he says to us that our example is Jesus Christ who forgave us as well. It's not easy. Even myself, the most natural reaction when someone has wronged me is to think of ways to get back at them. Don't let the thoughts of revenge consume your life, my friends. It will destroy you. In the spirit-filled life that we should cultivate, allow love and forgiveness to reign. Look at verse 43 to 45 for our next principle. Rebecca's words now therefore my son obey my voice arise flee to my brother Laban in Haran and stay with him a few days until your brother's fury turns away until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him then I will send and bring you from there why should I be bereaved also of you both in one day Rebecca advises Jacob that He should run away to live with his uncle, Rebekah's brother Laban. We'll talk more about him in the subsequent weeks. Find safety, you will, there. And Jacob was to stay there until message was sent to him that his brother's rage and his anger has subsided. Rebekah understood very well our second principle, number two, if you're taking notes. And she tells it to Jacob. Number two, anger subsides with time. Anger often subsides with time. And may I add, but don't allow too much time to pass before dealing with any residual anger. Anger often subsides with time, but don't allow too much time to pass before dealing with any residual anger. In her mind, it will only take a few days for Esau to forgive Jacob. What she doesn't realize is that it will take him decades. As I mentioned last week, I, I don't really believe that Rebecca and Jacob really thought through the fallout of their deception plan. Perhaps they had in mind that Esau would get over it quickly. He was an impulsive man. He would easily, quickly forget But they underestimated his level of anger. Put yourself in the shoes of Esau. Could you so easily forget in a week's time what your brother, your family member has done to you? I don't believe you and I could get over it, even if it took a month. And the reason anger often subsides with time. Rebecca says herself in verse 45 is because the memories of why you are so angry to begin with begins to be forgotten. That's why Rebecca says to Jacob, when Esau forgets what Jacob has done, then his anger will subside, but we don't easily forget when we have been wronged, when injustice has been done, when we've been hurt, we are deeply disappointed. We sometimes encourage one another, just forgive and forget. Just let it go, forgive and forget. But as I've preached before, that's actually not biblical. The forgiveness part is biblical, the forgetting part isn't. It's impossible. Imagine when you have been wronged so deeply, you will carry that hurt and the remembrance of it for the rest of your life. Now, you may cite me passages like Isaiah 43 verse 25 or Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 where it says that God says, I will remember your sins no more and will tell one another, why can't you be more like God? Look, even he doesn't remember past transgressions. But hang on. We have to understand that in those contexts, the omniscient God doesn't really forget The idea in those verses is that he no longer uses those sins to condemn us. He forgets. means he doesn't bring up our past sins to condemn us if we are declared righteous when we place our trust in his son. If you and I have been hurt in a very deep way, we'll remember it for the rest of our life. But our ability to forgive takes place with the help of the Holy Spirit when that which has been done to us no longer affects us. And we are able to accept the person who wronged us in spite of what they have done. Again, this is so difficult. It's a process. It's a journey. Especially if it deals with close friends and family members. Sometimes it will take days Sometimes it will take weeks. Sometimes it will take months. Sometimes years. Sometimes decades. There are families, even in our church, that have been feuding for decades. They don't attend the same service. It will only perhaps be into the next generation when the situation can finally be settled. It just shows you That disappointments in life often create a very deep anger that is not so easily resolved. And time will subside, the anger, but not always in a few days. That's why Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 to 27, Be angry. And do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Listen carefully, my friends. The feeling of anger in and of itself is not a sin. You may be happy to know that it is okay for Christians to get angry. It is very okay and natural for Christians to get angry. If your employee does something wrong and you get angry, it's okay. Don't let them tell you, oh, you're a Christian, you shouldn't be angry. If your children have disobeyed you and they've done something wrong, it's okay for you to be angry. Because some smart-alecky church kid of yours who just attended Sunday school may come up to you and say, Remember, you shouldn't be angry. You're a Christian. You can tell them it's okay to be angry. In fact, it's a God-given emotion. As David Siemens writes in his article, anger is a divinely implanted emotion. In fact, it's a God-given emotion closely aligned to our instinct for right. It is designed to be used for constructive spiritual purposes. The person who cannot feel anger at evil is a person who lacks enthusiasm for good. If you cannot hate wrong, it's very questionable whether you really love righteousness. Such true words. Even Jesus was angry at what was happening in the temple that he flipped over the tables of the money changer. Anger is a God-given emotion. But it is the response in our anger that determines whether we have sinned or not. And that's why the second part of our principle says... While anger often subsides with time, don't allow too much time to pass before dealing with the residual angers. Attend to it, don't let it linger, or Satan will begin to use that anger in your heart to turn you very bitter, to make you upset. You know, it's interesting as we think about Ephesians 4, verse 26 to 27. A lot of people uh, often uh, misinterpret this verse. On the part where it says, Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. What they think is that every fight, every disagreement must be settled at the end of the day. Does that really happen? Of course not. So I always smile and I laugh inside when... At a wedding, in the vows, the bride or the groom or both write that they will never allow an argument to go beyond the day. I'm sorry, but that just doesn't happen. Perhaps some of you this morning have not talked to your spouse for three days now. I've been married almost 20 years, and I know that our arguments do not end at the end of the day so we have to understand this is a figure of speech this is to remind us that it needs to be settled can you imagine you have a fight at 11.50 at night you have to end it by 12 midnight it doesn't happen or actually if you take it literally and not understanding it as a figure of speech it's got to end when the sun sets does that mean in the summer your fights are longer and in the winter your fights are shorter Of course not it is the reminder that we don't allow Satan to grab a foothold into our hearts to exacerbate the bitterness that may be in our hearts by uh, addressing the hurts and the anger knowing this principle helps us control our own actions while we accept the realities of life. Perhaps you have been hurt and you're angry and you want to shoot off an email or a message or a viber or a text to a friend, a colleague, a family member. It would be wise to send it the next day or in a few days to allow your anger to subside before you write something or do something you will regret. It's never a good idea to do something or say something in the heat of the moment when the anger of your life takes away the natural filters that protect us from foolish actions. That's why James chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, reminds us, so then, my beloved brethren, let each man, note this, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And on the flip side, applicationally, if you have hurt someone, remember, you have to give them time to process and allow their anger to subside. If you just hurt someone deeply, you can't come up to them and say, you got to forgive me now, you're a Christian. You have to understand that they need time to allow their anger to subside. But whatever the case, the issue of anger must be dealt with with God's help. If it is allowed to percolate, it will destroy you. As Dr. Harbin writes in his book, Beyond Anger, as a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of angry men, I've seen many of my patients lose jobs, wives, and opportunities because they were simply not able to handle the normal frustrations and disappointments in life. They argue, they insult, and they sulk. They come to think of themselves as ineffective, unlucky, and just plain losers. They don't admit this to anyone, but deep inside they feel inferior. Others don't like them. They don't like themselves. Their anger gets in the way of their ability to be good bosses, good workers, and good family men. I've spent a great deal of time evaluating men who have been charged with serious crimes such as assault and murder. Many, many of these crimes were not premeditated. These men did not all start out with the intention of hurting others. They reacted impulsively, most often out of anger. This is a picture of what happens when you don't allow anger to subside with time but also when you do not deal with it properly. Verse 46. And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of Heath. If Jacob takes a wife of the daughters of Heath, like those who are the daughters of this land, what good will my life be to me? Somehow no one tells Isaac Esau's plan. Perhaps they feel sorry for him. He is blind. He is, in their minds, about to die. We should not trouble him with Esau's plans. And so when his wife Rebecca comes, he uses, she uses another reason for Isaac to allow Jacob to leave. And she uses the reason of their daughters-in-law. We are told in Genesis twenty-six thirty-four that for whatever reason, Esau's wives... Caused his parents, Isaac and Rebecca, much sorrow and grief. We are not given the reason why, perhaps because of the differences in culture or perhaps their belief. But somehow the possibility of having a third Hittite daughter in law scared even Isaac. Whatever was wrong with having a Hittite daughter in law culturally weighed upon them heavily. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him again before his departure. Look at verse 1 to 5 of chapter 28. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padam Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may be an assembly of peoples, and give you the blessing of Abraham to you and your descendants with you, that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger, which God gave to Abraham. So Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padam Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Syrian, the brother of Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau. I find it very interesting that when Jacob comes and he meets Isaac, that Isaac doesn't rebuke Jacob for deceiving him. In fact, it's quite startling that Isaac doesn't say anything regarding the deception. Perhaps Isaac realized he too was wrong, that his own desire previously to give Isaac the blessing in spite of the fact that there was a prophecy to Rebecca. The older serving the younger, and his knowledge of the selling of Esau's birthright to Jacob was not the will of God. And so he finally came to the resigned fact that his favorite son would not be blessed by God, in the sense that he would not carry on the Abrahamic covenant, but he would go through Jacob. And so Isaac blesses Jacob, and this blessing in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 28 goes beyond the initial blessing. He gave to Jacob when he was pretending to be Esau. What we see see here is that in spite of the manipulation, the deception, the wrongdoing of all four main characters, God's sovereign plan is still accomplished. It clearly shows that in spite of men and women's sin, God can still use our sinful acts to have His will done. However, the sinners will be punished. And they will suffer consequences. And so while Jacob receives the blessing from Isaac, he must suffer the consequences of his own deceptive sins. One of which is that he must flee. He must leave his home. He will not come back for decades. Sadly, another consequence... Is that this will be the last time that Rebecca sees her favorite son, Jacob? She will die before he returns back home decades later. Sadly, Jacob doesn't see his beloved mother ever again. That's what happens when men and women think that they're helping God and try to do things that are not in his will. There are consequences. Now, going back to these verses, what is the principle we can draw from what Rebekah says to Isaac and what Isaac says to Jacob? Number three, if you're taking notes. Sometimes separation or avoidance is needed to deal with disappointment or to diffuse anger. Sometimes, and you can put in the word temporary in quotes, in, in parentheses, sometimes temporary separation or avoidance is needed to deal with disappointment or to diffuse anger. In heated conflicts, separation is sometimes what it's called for. It's the most spiritual thing to do to allow people to cool off and then to... Prepare a proper response later. Right? You know, when two basketball players are fighting, they're in each other's face, their chests are touching. What's the first thing that the ref and the coaches do? The first thing, they separate the players. They don't say, while well, face is right in front of the other face. Now, what should you say to each other? Trust me, it won't be, I'm sorry. It may be words that would inflame the situation. First thing that they do in basketball, they separate the players. Go to your benches, cool off, and then we'll deal with it. Can you imagine if Jacob says to his parents after this, since I'm going to be gone for a while, do you think it would be okay if I went to tell Esau goodbye? That'd be crazy. Or if he goes up to Esau and he tells Esau, Esau, I'm going to leave for a while while you cool off. Before I leave, you think I can get a hug from you? Goodbye hug? Of course not. I think if Esau saw the face of Jacob at that moment, he would have killed him on the spot. Jacob, his parents, we're wise to tell him to flee quickly, knowing what Esau is capable of. Sometimes walking away from a tension-filled situation is the right solution. Now, you may think that I'm extrapolating this principle, stretching the story a bit too much. No, it's actually taught elsewhere in the Scriptures Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, in the context of the marriage relationship, sometimes when two couples are fighting, it calls for a time of separation between spouses. That's allowed. However, the Bible is very clear, but not too long to allow Satan to tempt in the context of intimacy. When spouses are fighting, sometimes it's best that everyone returns back to their corner to gather themselves. That's why sometimes when you travel, the fights seem to be more intense. Why? Because there's no place to hide. You're stuck in the same hotel room. You see each other, and you don't want to see them. The very sight of them elicits in your heart great anger. Sometimes the Bible tells us the solution is just to separate. Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. The emphasis of this verse is sometimes you just have to let it lay low. Separate physically but only for a while. If you know me, I'm someone by nature hot-headed. But I've learned through many mistakes that if I confront at the moment of anger, it never turns out well. In my own spiritual maturity process and journey, I've come to understand that in a spirit-filled life, even in anger the Spirit will lead you to pause and perhaps physically remove yourself from that situation so as not to confront in conflict until some of the tension wears off. Remember the story of David and Saul. Saul would sometimes get very angry at David. What would he do? He would throw spears at David. What did David do? Ah, you missed me. I think I'll hang around a little bit till you actually get your accuracy down. No. The Bible is very clear. David left. Even told Jonathan, Jonathan, I can't be here. I can't be here. The sight of me makes your dad very angry. He was wise enough, spirit filled enough to know that he shouldn't be around. So understand that sometimes temporary separation or avoidance is needed to deal with disappointments, hurts, and to diffuse anger. Now let's take a look at verses 6 to 9. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padam Aram to take himself a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he gave him a charge saying, you shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padam Aram. Verse 8 Also, Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan did not please his father Isaac. So Esau went to Ishmael and took Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the daughter of Nemajah, to be his wife in addition to the wives he had. Esau was furious when he found out that Jacob wasn't around anymore, that his father and mother had blessed him to go. To Padam Aram. He was even more furious that Isaac had blessed his rival brother again. He was even more angry that he heard that Jacob was told by his father, Do not take a wife from the land of Canaan, as he had so done. Kind of a slap in the face. And it seemed as if Esau's world was. Was crashing down, and so what did Esau do? Bible tells us in verse 8, he took another wife from the people of the land, which he knew would make his father angry. In his anger, he turned on the parent that favored him. Now, if verse 8 had said, And he saw the daughters of Canaan and they were beautiful, okay, maybe we understand. But the Bible tells us he saw the daughters of Canaan and he knew that if he married one of them, another one, it would greatly displease his father. And because in his mind his father so wronged him now, father and mother, he was going to make his life, Isaac's life, miserable. Now hang on, before we continue, let me just take a side note here because some of you may be wondering. God never allowed polygamy. It was the design of God that in marriage, it was a monogamous relationship between one man and one woman. So you may say, why do some of these men of faith have multiple wives, which was common in the culture of that day? Why didn't God punish them? Just because God didn't immediately punish them doesn't mean He was ever okay with it. We find out that in every family situation with multiple wives, There was a lot of problems caused by having multiple wives. But who are we to tell God He must punish them or else He is okay with it? When we look at our own lives and we do many sinful things, that God doesn't at our immediate moment punish us, but He is gracious. But His lack of of immediate punishment for our sins doesn't mean He's okay with our sins. He's just gracious. As he was gracious with these men of faith. Just wanted to say that. But let's come back to Esau. Esau had given up hope. In his mind, I can't win at anything. I'm going to make dad angry. I can't do anything to make my family happy. I don't have the birthright. I don't have the blessing. I'm just going to blow everything up. To heck with everything. To heck with anything. Military... Words, we call that the scorched earth policy. I'm just going to burn everything. Father doesn't want Jacob to marry these Canaanite women. I'll do it just to spite him. What a silly life philosophy. I'm so angry, I'm going to do something to make you more angry. It's like me saying, you know what? I know it'll make you angry if I take drugs. So you know what? To spite you, I'm going to take drugs. Um... Who are you harming at the end? Yourself. Yourself. That's what anger does. It confuses people. They think that they are going to hurt someone else through action. It ends up hurting themselves, which is what we're going to see in the life of Esau. And yet, there are many people who carry around this life philosophy When in their mind, all is lost, I'll just burn everything to the ground, figuratively and sometimes literally. I'll expose everyone. I'll take everyone down. In reality, you only hurt yourself. Here's the fourth principle, number four. Giving up hope and responding in anger is not the solution to disappointment. It is trusting in God and finding hope in Him. Giving up hope and responding in anger is not the solution to disappointment. It is trusting in God and finding hope in Him. You see, the worst of combinations came into play in the life of Esau. He had given up hope. He was angry. In his mind, what do I have to live for? Jacob has taken everything, and he's gone He gave up hope and he responded in anger to his disappointment. And he made more mistakes in life. If only he could have found hope in the Lord. If only he allowed his anger to subside. He could have learned a greater lesson. In the book Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey, it's a great book, you should read it. Philip Yancey tells the story of a man he refers to as Douglas. Douglas was a sincere, devout Christian whose wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. The breast was removed, but a couple years later, the cancer was found in her lungs. So she had to go through the agony of chemotherapy. One night in the middle of all of this, he was driving with his wife and 12-year-old daughter when a drunk driver swerved and struck them head-on. His wife was unhurt, His daughter had minor injuries, but Douglas himself received a massive blow to the head. He would have sudden headaches for the rest of his life, dizzy spells, couldn't work a full day. He would become disoriented and forgetful, develop the double vision with one eye, which refused to focus for the rest of his life. When Philip Yancey met with Douglas to interview him about his disappointments with God, this is what Douglas told him. To tell you the truth, Philip, I don't feel any disappointment with God. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But if I confuse God with the realities of life by expecting constant good health, for example, then I'm only setting up myself for a crashing disappointment what he means by that is this if we expect everything to always go our way if we expect everyone to do the right thing if we expect everyone to live uprightly according to the word of God then we would be okay with it but we know that that's not the case and so we shake our fist at God and we say Lord, why? I'm so disappointed with you. You have failed me. But no, actually. It's because we have not understood that God's ways are not our ways. That God in His everlasting love always has the best in mind and it is incumbent upon us to submit to His will and accept what He has allowed to happen in our life. It's a tough lesson about faith. But when one gives up hope, responds in anger, thinking that's a solution to disappointment, as opposed to trusting in the plan of God that we don't understand, and finding hope in Him, then indeed all is lost. This week I asked my life groups... This question, as we were discussing some of the previous sermons in our small group, I asked them, who do you think, out of the four characters of Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau, were most at fault and least at fault? Every one of them had a fault. But in your opinion, I asked the small group, who was most at fault and who was least at fault? Surprisingly, across multiple life groups, the overwhelming consensus was who of who was least at fault was esau ninety five percent of the respondents Esau is least at fault. I think we all feel sorry for him. I certainly do actually. I felt sorry for this poor man taken advantage of losing what supposed to be his I felt sorry for him as I thought about these four characters it seemed that your hearts also went out to Esau perhaps you have been wrong like Esau he wasn't perfect but he got shafted he drew the, he drew the short end of the stick and I think about expressions of faith we always talk About how one expresses faith It would have been easier For Jacob To have faith in God God had already promised him That he would be Superior Over his older brother So all he had to do In living out faith Was just letting God work It would have been easy For Isaac and Rebecca To show faith and trust in God all they had to do was not manipulate the situation and trust that God would work out his own prophecy. Then we come to Esau. Poor guy. We, we say that he must live and trust God by faith, and he, doing so, would have to accept a few things. Would have to accept the fact that he would never be better than his brother. That's a tough thing to accept. He must accept by faith that it is God's perfect will for his life that he would play second fiddle to his brother. That's a tough faith walk. And I think it was hard for him to accept that. And that's why he gave up hope. His actions indicated that he was going to go on a scorched earth policy. What's my life? I have nothing to live for. I just make everyone angry. And yet, if we cultivate a faith in God that runs deeper than thinking that our way is the best way, it is possible to accept a similar fate. Do you remember Jonathan in the Bible? you remember the best friend of David? Jonathan, the crown prince, the son of Saul. He was destined by family heritage to be the next king of Israel. But it wasn't God's will. It was God's will for David, his best friend, to be the next king. Think about how much faith it must have taken Jonathan to tell David, David, it's God's will that you be king. I will serve you. But that's exactly what he did. In a very intimate conversation, Jonathan could not wait for God's plan to unfold where his friend David would be king while he took a step back as the crown prince to serve David and his life was full of joy full of faith his faith was deep Esau couldn't understand it he couldn't accept it that's why it drove him to such anger Jonathan accepted it trusted in God that it was the best plan even. For his life. And as the Bible records his life. It seemed, he seemed to have a good relationship. A great relationship. With God and with his friends. And then we look at the New Testament. No greater example than that of Jesus. Who was due all of heaven's praise and glory. And we see that in his prayer in Gethsemane realizing that the submission to the Father's perfect and best will was for Him to die a horrible death by crucifixion so that He could die for the sins of mankind. And He says, not my will, but your will be done. Anger dissipates when we understand that it's not about our will, that it's about God's will being done. We give up hope when we don't understand that God has a greater will sometimes when things don't go our way. We must learn to trust even more. We must learn to deepen our faith walk when the disappointments of life come about. It will keep anger in check. It will encourage us To have a joyful life, even when life doesn't turn out the way we think or want it to have turned out. These are tough lessons. I struggle with it, and I know you do as well. We need the Holy Spirit. We need His filling of our lives to be able to practically live these principles out but it will help us at the end. It's for our good. Let me leave you with these words as we all deal with disappointment in anger. It is a Chinese proverb. It goes something like this. If you are patient in one moment of anger, you will escape a hundred days of sorrow. If you are patient in one moment of anger, you will escape a hundred days of sorrow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know many of us identify with Esau. We are hurt. Things have happened in our life that have brought great disappointment because that which has disappointed us ...comes through the actions or the words of people closest to us... ...our family members, our friends. I pray that with the Spirit's help... ...you would allow us to keep anger in check. That you would allow us to be wise enough... ...to allow time to subside our anger... ...when called for... ...to physically remove ourselves from those points of tension... And to never give up hope. To know that in this sinful world, your sovereign plan will still always ultimately come to bear. And our faith and our hope needs to always be upon you. Father, change our hearts so that revenge is not our natural response when we have been hurt. But love and compassion and forgiveness. But may it be that when we are to be angry, we will be angry for your righteousness. We will be angry for your holiness. We will take a stand when the Scripture is being attacked, when the person of the triune Godhead is being mocked that our anger as followers then come out in such a way that it pleases you. You know what everyone is going through. Would you allow your words this morning from the Word of God to challenge and to change in accordance with your will? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.